The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are merely an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibility for the stories contained herein. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast which aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn, our community. Content warning. This podcast may contain frank and graphic descriptions of sexual abuse and assault, including instances of rape. These accounts can be triggering specifically for those who have also experienced trauma, especially of a sexual nature. If at any point during this podcast, you feel yourself getting triggered, we suggest taking a break and taking care of yourself before continuing. But we do ask that you continue. These conversations are mentally taxing, but they are so important to have. Thank you. All right, we are back with episode seven of Enough. Um, today we are doing things a little bit different than some of the previous episodes. Um, our guest on the podcast today is Kate. She is actually also a podcaster. Uh, she has her own podcast. It's called Surviving Justice. Do you want to give us a little bit of a summary of what your podcast is and what you do on it? Sure, absolutely. Thanks. So um, my podcast is called Surviving Justice, Realities of Reporting Rape and the reason that I made it was because, unfortunately, I about four years ago, I had been drugged and raped. Um, and so I didn't really want to report, but I ended up reporting anyways, knowing that it probably wouldn't be a great process, but not fully understanding how horrible it really can be for survivors. So about two years in, nothing was happening with my case. I was super frustrated. I didn't understand how it was possible that so many things could go wrong and that this was such a common occurrence. So I began to just interview different people, um, like people who work within the field. So lawyers, detectives, prosecutors, just different, different people like that, but also survivors, a lot of different survivors who were going through similar things and had hardships within the system and ended up kind of laying out this whole podcast that really the first season revolves around what it's like to walk through that process and why there are so many continual failures at every single step of the way for survivors who go through it. So that is the gist of the podcast. And um, I feel like there's like a misconception that it was just something I was doing out of vengeance, which was not the case at all. It was more like I was trying to understand. And I definitely walked away with a better understanding. And I hope that the listeners do as well. And there's so many great survivors who share their stories that were just incredible. So um, if anybody does give it a listen, I just want to especially thank the survivors who contributed as well. And where are you with your case currently, if you don't mind me asking? Sure. Um, really interesting timing for that. So it actually was after four entire years, after three separate investigations and two different prosecutors' offices, was finally closed. I mean, it's never great to know that it's closed, but at that point in your life, it's so much more harmful to you than it is um, something that you can even bear to go on with anymore that I was like, really, actually just, I was done with it. And I was grateful that it was over. So unfortunately, it was closed. There's still a perpetrator who will probably continue to harm people. But for me, it's over. <laughs> so I guess that part is nice. That's so sad that it's the, the reality of the situation for so many people, including yourself, is that finding that relief or that catharsis is just the fact that it's over, not specifically really over, but just something you're not going to be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis legally anymore. You still have to deal with all the other things that come with it on an emotional and mental and physical day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it because honestly, at the, at the point I was at, after the initial, like the initial investigation kind of started going south, it just became like chronic abuse against myself for basically 
three and a half years <laughs> like and counting so it was just like what are they going to do to me next like speaking of the police it's like what are they going to do next what are they going to say next what other things do I have to deal with next that's an attack on my on my character on my well-being like I just felt like I was always looking over my shoulder and then you know also having a private investigator that had been hired by the person who assaulted me so it was just it was it was too much honestly and so after dealing with that for four years you're definitely you can't nobody can deal with that for that amount of time so yeah it is really sad that that's the reality but it is for so many people it's interesting that you bring up when you're talking about the podcast that you know people think that maybe this is like a vengeance thing or something and that's such a common thing that we hear with people who are going through this either friends of their perpetrator or people who aren't don't really know what the process is like it's they're like you know why can't you just let this go like why are you out to get this person as if that's the reason behind this is to get someone right exactly and i think since especially so much of my podcast is focused on the system and the process like i don't think there was this perception that it was against the perpetrator like i went to great lengths to make sure that he was included as little as possible because he doesn't deserve the time right but yeah, even even against the system, it's like still seen of as like this vengeance or just like, it's interesting, even on this like broader systemic level where you're seeking change and like trying to find answers, it's considered something vengeful just because it's associated with sexual assault. I don't know that we really see the same thing if the gender roles were reversed. But I know, again, in saying that the amount of sexual assault cases against men is so much lower than it is with women, not that it doesn't happen. It's just that the numbers are lower just the way that survivors and victims are treated in general and the way women are treated in general, uh, it's almost an automatic red X against you if you are a woman and coming to someone saying like, here's a situation in which I've survived. We need to start investigating this. No one seems to really take the time to think about what somebody is doing to themselves physically, emotionally, and mentally. In addition to dealing with the legal system, which has never been known to be the easiest thing to navigate, no matter what state you live in. I mean, all of that just surmounts into one giant emotional mess. And I don't understand why anyone would ever think that someone coming to the table would be doing that, like, just for spite. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And I think it just comes back to a complete lack of understanding of people and a little bit too much trust in certain institutions, depending on like what community you grew up in, right? That like, if you do go forward with filing charges or something like that, that you will be taken seriously. And like, they're going to do everything they can. Like, that's just a myth. Let's just call it what it is. So I learned everything as I went through it. And most survivors do. I think there's just a huge lack of understanding about this whole thing. Like, I feel like one of the most common things that I hear people say to other survivors is, are you going to press charges? Why don't you press charges? It's like, you don't make that decision. <laughs> That's still like just this really common thing about the legal system that people don't understand very often is that you're not the one who gets to make choices. If survivors are reporting, more than likely, most of the time, they're going to want to pursue charges, but out of their hands and um it's just not something that the legal system is equipped to confront or deal with or quite frankly that they really want to invest the resources and time into so there's a lot of myths that i think exist in society where just people don't understand the emotional toll and the uphill battle that it is to to report and to get anybody to listen and to take you seriously and the amount of manpower behind it that it really takes to be able to even budge your case past an initial interview. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit for people who don't know what that process is actually like reporting an assault or a rape? 
Sure. So, I mean, we know there's so many very valid, legitimate reasons that people don't press charges. And among the most common is that people don't believe that the system will do anything to help them, which is very accurate, unfortunately. But um, for the people who do choose to report, I think the misconceptions begin there. For example, like in my case, I didn't want to really, and I knew that it was going to be very painful and not a good process. But I also knew I have a really good support system. In my mind, I was like prepared for it to not go so well, but not just like <laughs> totally disrupt my life the way that it did. And looking back, I never, if I had known, I never would have gone forward. So it's like, you kind of make this decision to like, this all's already happened to you. If it's not a romantic partner or somebody that's in your life, you're usually doing it to protect other people and to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Those are the reasons most likely that you're going to be reporting it. Or just even some people don't want to pursue anything. They just want to contact the police and have this person's name in a police report somewhere so that if it does happen again later, at least there's a record of it somewhere, which also, again, is putting a lot of faith in the police that they're going to actually go through that and put it in the system and that they'll be able to look back and that the next police department is going to actually contact the previous police department, which I can tell you my case didn't happen after four years, like my whole life is torn apart, but they didn't do anything for him. So that's just one kind of, it's just, there are a lot of misconceptions across the board and rightly so, because those are things that should be done. But basically what happens after that is if you do choose to report or feel obligated to report, you will contact a police department, or if you get a rape kit right away, you'll be contacted by a patrol officer. So that person has absolutely no training in sexual assault. Even most detectives have absolutely no training in sexual assault who work in the sexual assault unit. So that's something that um, is a big misconception too. They don't need any, they're, they're not required any. There's no like, there's no training at all. The vast majority, if they even have a separate sexual assault unit, which many don't, especially if they're like a small rural kind of police department, they, they don't. And for the ones that do, they often learn from the people who are basically like their superiors or people who were working in that department before them. So they're learning from people who have these even more aged and outdated ideas about sexual assault rather than actually learning from all of these amazing free available resources that they could choose to learn from. But unfortunately, they just don't put the time into it a lot of the time. So that's who you're talking to when you give a police report. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. It is terrifying. And then th that person, whoever you talk to first, makes the decision if it should keep going or if they're going to keep investigating or what they're going to choose to do. And you really have very little say in what happens next. So, so an untrained person who has no idea how to treat this who's been trained by old white dudes, makes a decision whether this case continues or this person just keeps walking around doing whatever happens to you, to other people. Justice in America. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's, it's like, that's why like they never go forward ever. <laughs> it's just so frustrating. And like, I'm sure, of course, some police department somewhere is going to be like, we train our officers, blah, blah. But like, honestly, some of that time they think that like, sending their officers to some police department conference and them attending one single training for 45 minutes in a session. It feels like that's the same thing with so many things when dealing with the police, like mental health issues, domestic incidents. They got guns, though. They got guns, though. <laughs> that's true. I, I do remember that specifically. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's got to be horrifying going in there like, yeah, it's crazy. I remember like my detective coming to take my statement and he's got, he's just has this like enormous gun on his side. And I'm just like, is this, is this necessary right now? But yeah, that's, that's, that's that, but he like doesn't have a pen. He's like, does anyone have a pen? I don't seem to have a, no. All right. That's like almost scary accurate. Oh my God. <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. 
Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> well, well, keep walking us through the process. This is very interesting and eye-opening and horrifying all at the same time. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, for so many people, the process stops, like it literally stops there. You talk to either this patrol officer who's not in the sexual assault unit, or just to give an example, in my situation, I went into, I got a rape kit, which they send a patrol officer, but like, I didn't, I wasn't ready to talk that day. I was still like, so just like, I had been drugged first of all. So I was just like, I was not in a good place being talking to a police officer and getting, giving like a formal legal statement right there. At least the one thing that went right is that they send advocates there. So the advocate would go talk to the patrol officer, send them away. And then like I contacted them a couple of days later when I was a little bit better. And they do recommend that you get a few sleep cycles before you actually talk to somebody about it, like whether you're drugged or not, just so that you're in a better frame of mind. If you do go in and talk to somebody, like I tried to give my statement to a patrol officer and it was the end of the day, so he didn't want to take it. So he told me to contact the sexual assault unit. I was supposed to be contacted by them. They didn't contact me until two days later, despite that I took the next day off of work, specifically to wait for their phone call, which I was told I would get. And then they asked me to wait another five days, which I'm thinking like evidence is going missing. Like, why am I thinking of this and not you? That happens a lot of the time is you'll be put off a little bit. So you have to like, honestly be really persistent then you might talk to somebody who specializes in sexual assault or is in that unit at least and then they'll come usually take your initial statement sometimes they'll have you do a confrontation call which is what I I had to do the day of which I was not expecting where you just literally call the perpetrator out of the blue and say like why did you rape me yeah it's a really intense conversation (laughs) that is that sounds so inappropriate on so many levels Oh, it was. There was no, there was no like preparation at all. There's like, there was no planning. I was thinking like, why aren't we planning this? Why aren't we like writing down it? He was like, just ask him why he drugged, like, just ask him why he drugged you. Ask him why he did that. And I'm just like, shouldn't we think about this a little? Like, should we strategize a little better? And like, maybe not ask that right off the bat, but like. What answer were they expecting him to be like thrown off and been like, well, here's the thing. I was looking to rape and I didn't really care who it was. Case closed. (laughs) Yeah, there he is. Exactly. Like no one in their right mind is going to just be like, yeah, I definitely did that. Like, whoops, (laughs) like it just slipped out of my pocket. Yeah. And I was like freaking out. So like I was starting to have like a panic attack, my heart's racing. So I like I asked if I could go outside because like I just needed like a second to like calm down. He was like, well, you're making me nervous by not wanting to do it. So I was like, oh, my God, does he not believe me if I don't do it right now? And I was just nervous. Like anyone would be nervous to call up someone and say something like that. Yeah. And confront somebody who did that to you. So it was just, especially this person was kind of like in a position of power over me as well. So it was something that I was really nervous to do. So like, that's something that a lot of times they have you do and they have you do it on the spot, which is horrifying. This is so fucked up. I can't even handle this right now. Like, this is, it's everything that's wrong. It's like every part of me is like, no, don't ever do this. This is a terrible thing to do. Like you said, if there's a way that you could plot and plan and be very strategic, with certain people in certain cases, but like not everything fits into this mold. Like you can't just jam a bunch of procedures at a person and assume it's going to work out. No wonder none of this is like gelling and nothing ever comes of any of this. This is insane. Exactly. And I think that's a, it's a really good point about sort of like the mindset and the personality of people who go into the law enforcement field as you are like trained from like, if you're 18 and go right into it, there's a black and a white and there's way you do things and you follow procedures and you don't deviate from it and you do it one certain way. So like There's no room for the humanity of situations when you're dealing with this kind of thing. Something like a confrontation call for somebody is like horrific. And like, like you said, something that you would never do without taking the pause and thinking about it and planning it. Right. And then like, 
for them, it's just sort of like, well, this is just what you do. Why are you nervous? <laughs> like, we just have to do it. So. That comment, like, oh, now you're making me nervous. Uh, fuck you. Like, <laughs> yeah. Do we not understand why I'm here doing this with you? Like, <laughs> exactly. Because he was like, I'll write down things for you to say. I'm like, well, what if you don't write fast enough? Like, what if I have a question I want to ask? What if there's something out for you? There's no information going into it. They just give you like two questions to ask. If you have these two questions to ask, you know, you call the person. Yeah, it's crazy. So they might have you do stuff like that. And then like, if, if, if at the end of all of this, they still somewhat believe you or you have other evidence, like, for example, in my case, I was worried because like I've heard horror stories and I was like, I don't want to do this. I'm worried they're not going to take me seriously. So like I had waited a couple of days and in that amount of time, like one day I went back to the apartment I was at and asked if they had video and they said they did, but they couldn't give it to me. So I was like, okay, I have to unfortunately contact the police for this. And like, there were different pieces of evidence that I knew were available, but like I couldn't get them personally. So I was just like, okay, I think one thing that really helped me and the reason why at first they were so willing to like dive a little deeper into my case was because of the way the confrontation call went me being able to say I know there's these other things out there like can you please at least follow up on them and I think that's really unfortunate because it's not the survivor's job to go hunting people down and go hunting places down it was just like for me like I'm a very like I deal with things by turning to activism or like trying to do something about it other people just like they deal with it in a very different way and that's totally understandable and well but I think for me because I had already like followed up on some things. They felt an obligation to at least like respond by doing that. So like for me, they did go forward and like go to one bar that I thought I was at. I found out I went to two, just different things like that, like collective video where it turned out that I didn't know it was in it, but it turned out I walked into an apartment building and just literally face planted like onto this like sofa that was in the middle of it. That was important. He was fine. He's like standing there filming me falling over. So like, this was like, it was super fucked up basically. After that, after they do some kind of investigation, if they do, which again is like most of the time, even if you have a rape kit, they'll just basically be like, okay, well, I have your story. This is he said, she said until the rape kit comes back, which in many states, they're not testing them. If they do test them, there's like a 20 year delay, not an exaggeration, or they just- Minnesota just had a big thing with thousands of untested rape kits. Yep. Absolutely. And that's a that's a really big problem across the entire country. Um, And some states are some states are catching up and everything. And again, that can also work to the detriment of survivors. So like for my state, because they were testing old backlog kits that they should have done 20 years ago, um, mine was delayed by two years. So that was like a major factor in like my whole thing. So it's just really frustrating. Like no matter the rape kit situation is like, why, why was that never done in the first place? It just, it, it just shows like the disbelief of survivors across the board that has existed for so long, right? Like there's no reason that DNA evidence should not have been tested. So basically after that process, if they believe you enough to investigate a little bit further, then they make the choice to either arrest someone or not arrest somebody. In my situation, they decided to arrest this person. So I got a text that said this person is under arrest. And then two hours later, I got a text that said that this person hired an attorney and that attorney got him out of being arrested. Um, Yeah, my case is like really fucked up on a lot of levels. So it was just like a lot of false hope. And then just like, yeah, it was very devastating. It was like, I, and it's so disruptive. Like people don't understand. I think the level of disruption because you're, it's one of those things that when it happens to you, like your brain shuts off, like you can't think about anything. And I had just started a work meeting. I was supposed to be in that. I couldn't continue with it. There's just no way that your brain can keep doing daily tasks when you're processing this. There were people who were like in the same community as me who knew what was going on. And when I said like, 
well, he was arrested, but now he's not. Like there were tears from a lot of people that were affected by the situation. So it was just really difficult. Um, and also something that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't like a wealthy white male who had pre-hired a lawyer to get him out of the situation that he knew was coming. And like, why would he know that? So sometimes they arrest. That actually only happens 5% of the time. So I was almost in that 5%. <laughs> Having one thing that tips the scale, that should lead to an arrest. That should not be happening 5% of the time. That should be happening significantly more. But it speaks to a lack of follow-up. It speaks to privileges that certain people have. It speaks to just like a failure of the system in general. And then after that, if they do decide to go forward with charges after that, that person's usually not in jail. They're usually like just booked and set free, depending on the seriousness of the crime. And then you wait a year and a half for a trial. Then after the arrest, the prosecutor's office, so separate office entirely from the detectives, have to actually look at all the evidence and decide that they can prove it 99% or more that it actually happened. So the 50% for an arrest is not enough. They have to decide that there's significantly more. They have to have like some kind of like undeniable proof. They will do that for other crimes, but they won't do it for sexual assault. Even the, with tons of circumstantial evidence, a witness who's credible, like all of that stuff, they'll do that for other crimes. They will not do it for sexual assault. So it's just, it's more, it's more than just like the issue of evidence. Like, I don't want anyone to think that there's just not enough evidence in these cases because oftentimes there very much is. So then after that, there's there's a 1% chance they're actually going to try the case. 1% out of the 100% of cases that are even reported. And then after that, the likelihood of conviction is less than a percent. Um, and the likelihood they spend time in jail is even less than that. I remember one of my, um, the lawyers that was on one of my podcasts says, basically like you're free to rape because it's impossible. Like, Attorneys are giving the message that it's impossible to prove these cases when that's not the case at all. So it's very devastating. It's very frustrating. And it should be something that <laughs> bothers everyone to the point that there's a massive uprising. And like, I'm just like every single day, I'm like, where is it? Because this is completely ridiculous. In addition to that, less than 1%, that's just reported stuff. And the percentage of reported assaults and rapes is also so low that if you just think about the enormity of that, of how many people are out there just getting away with this, because down the line, the percentages just get lower and lower for reporting, for arrests, for conviction, for all of that. It's infuriating. In a lot of cases, I find it really hard to believe, especially when someone's drugging someone that they just wake up one day, decide to do it, and then just decide that like, that was fun. They're over it. They're never going to do it again. Um, and in my situation, I found out that there was somebody else who he did this to 10 years before me. She didn't report because the whole Me Too movement happened two months after I reported. So I just kind of got lucky in that sense of like culture sort of caught up to where I was at in that moment. But like thinking of somebody trying to report 10 years before that, probably having no idea where you could even get a rape kit. And I, from what I've heard, she was of the mentality that like no one's going to do anything. So why bother? And like she wasn't wrong. In every situation, no matter how much evidence you have, these things are just not going forward. And that it's a systemic issue. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue specific to the legal system, particularly within police and prosecutors' offices. And it's just really frustrating that there's not more of an understanding and attention on that. With like the, the person that you had just mentioned who said that you're basically free to rape, what are their concerns and their comments? And you know, what do they think that if anything can be done to try and right the ship on the right path. 
That's a great question. So the person who I'm referring to was actually a civil attorney who um, was doing a class action lawsuit against the city of Austin. It was, I believe, one of two lawyers. They were amazing. They were great to listen to. Um, it's ep- I think it's episode two of my podcast, if somebody does listen, but they were the ones who were realizing the problem and from a civil perspective could do something different about it. And the way that turned out was really crazy too. When it comes to Criminal prosecutors, just from speaking to former criminal prosecutors and speaking to others who are very familiar with the legal system and speaking from things that happened within my own experience that I know are have been generalized to other people as well. There's research on this. There's books. There's like Dr. Casillas Vaughn has amazing work on this, but it's like they don't want to in like their perception, kind of like waste their time and resources on these very difficult cases where like the jury pool is going to be hostile to the victim and like they basically have their own set of biases already going into it about what the public is going to think. And it's very frustrating because as a criminal prosecutor, their job is to educate the jury. Their job is to be the person who says, this is what happened and this is how it happened. They have a jury selection process. They have all of these things that they can use to their benefit, but there's just such a bias against doing it when they could pick up like a financial crime case and probably prove that pretty easily. And it doesn't take time. And they also have this sort of like stigma against their like win loss records. So they don't want to tarnish it with like having all these things that are like, if they're accurate in their assessment that the jury pool is to blame, which is society, then like society has been changing pretty dramatically. And society also changes with these like really big shifts. Cosby case doesn't really count anymore, but even at least for like not smaller cases, but in the, you know, like the more well-known population, like the Weinstein case, they were able to get a conviction on that. And that really changes things in society. Like it's changing all the time. And if they're unwilling to even try them, then they're never going to know. Other people have kind of brought up the point, like if they don't try them, why, why do they think that they know what people are going to do? And why are they basing their decisions on what to bring forward based on what they think a jury will think instead of their own skills and the evidence that is available? So let's talk about sort of the, the mental health aspect of all of this, because in addition to this very physical violation that happens, there is a lot of mental health stuff that comes with it also that people don't talk about a lot or really know about. And I'm kind of interested in what it was like for you and if you had a good support system behind you, how you sort of navigated all of that that came afterwards. Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) It's a little difficult. (laughs) And I just, I want to make it really clear, like, I tend to kind of laugh through things and things and not because it wasn't difficult and not because it wasn't traumatic, but because of the absurdity of things sometimes. It's just like, if you don't laugh at it, it's going to devastate you forever. We do that a lot on here because of those <laughs> very reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the mental health side of things is very difficult. And I think it's kind of one of those things that until you go through it, you just can't, there's no way for you to understand the depth of it. I remember like being at at the hospital getting a, a rave kit done and they they gave they give me this like huge packet of things and they're telling me what everything is and it's just like I think the first thing to go out the window is sort of like your concentration and your memory you're not even really thinking about anything except you're thinking about everything if that makes any sense and you just like can't your brain just can't focus like I've always been very like on top of everything very prepared for things like I don't forget things easily And after this happened to me, that completely changed. It's been four years and I still have an extremely difficult time (laughs) remembering very basic things and just like having a really hard time making decisions. I did have a really great support system, but even still your support system sort of 
dwindles over time because people don't understand having to deal with something for four years that's not really in your hands and in your control. And I did have people who stuck with me through all of that that I will be extremely grateful for forever, but um, very few of them have the capacity to understand and be accepting of just like dealing with you how you are in that moment, um, no matter how long it's been. And then people don't understand that like when, when, especially when you do report and the police become your enemy and you become like some kind of perpetrator (laughs) instead of just someone who reported a crime because you're like trying to hold them accountable, right? for not doing their job, they don't understand like the things that they're doing to you and the ways that they're basically essentially legitimately abusing you over time. So there's this kind of like lack of understanding. And like you said, sort of just especially over that amount of time, people who which is very common, it can be a very long process, like people saying, why don't you just get over it? Like, why don't you just move on? Like, this isn't good for you. Why don't you just put it down and walk away? And it's like, okay, and just like, how's that gonna look if I just walk away from this case, and then this perpetrator with this attorney and this private investigator are just gonna say like, oh, she lied, made the whole thing up. It's just like that mentally would have been more devastating to me than just walking through the process. As far as dealing with it mentally, otherwise, it's just like the length of time and the longer it goes on, I feel like the more and more it weighs on you and the less and less support that you tend to have. And you also, you you tell people less as time goes on because you don't want to be that person that's always bringing up the same thing over and over again. And like, just it's isolating too, for that same exact reason, because like, you know, for so long, there was this period of time where like for years where... I didn't really want to get to know new people or talk to different people because like I knew what was on my mind and I couldn't, I just could not get it off of my mind. I would rather just like not be around people and not deal with that aspect and not talk to people about it. You end up feeling very alone, even if you know you're not. I mean, just all the other, other typical things, the depression, the anxiety, like just this sleeping all the time or not sleeping all the time. And like, those variations and whenever something happens again, it's just like another huge blow to you and it feels worse and like heavier every time. And it's an interesting scenario because unlike so many other things in life, where if you, you know, talk to your friend about getting a promotion, it's like you already are on the same level and you're like, I know what it's like to get a promotion and now you have one and I'm happy for you. And I feel exactly how you feel about this moment. Even if you're talking to someone else who has been abused, because of what it latches onto inside of you and you're so very different than everyone else and your situation was different than theirs, it's just, it's, it's not the same. They're not going, no one is going to understand exactly what she went through and you can kind of get on the same level, but it's still so isolating when you're trying to talk to someone and you see that in their face that they want to understand, but they're not quite there. And then you kind of, at least for me, recognize that and think, oh God, I'm over talking. And now I've said something and then they don't know what I'm talking about. And now I've said something that's making me uncomfortable because they're uncomfortable. And then you start to spiral and that's when you start to shut down and you're like, I'm going to go. Thanks. Bye. It's one of those only things I can think of in life where you, despite having an almost identical situation to another person, don't have any sort of exact relation to that besides the like core issue of what happened to both of you because both experiences are so vastly different. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And I'm sorry that you've had that experience and it's very much, I think I agree with that a lot. It's like, you can, you can talk to people, but everyone has such different experiences and you don't know how many experiences and you don't know if they've been through childhood trauma, which is very, very common. Like re-victimization is so common if you've been abused as a child and then like you're in adulthood it has such a trajectory on your life depending on what happened to you so it's it can be very very difficult to relate to other people or to even people who I would tell 
anything in the world to otherwise like for this specific situation I really had to figure out over time like who do I truly trust with telling this that will at least understand my anger if they can't understand like why I'm angry understand my sadness if they can't understand like exactly the source of it and understand enough to like be there and like that's a really good point that it's just it's so incredibly different and that everyone's situation is so different and I think that feeds even back into the first part of like why people report or why they don't report because everyone's situation is so different like you don't know you don't know the circumstances of it and yeah and it's such an also just intimate and like violating experience that's unique in its own right that there's so many layers and levels to it that you just yeah it's so off-putting to think when when they say things like and the only people who understand are the people that were involved. And you're like, well, I can't talk to that fucking person. There's no way. Like, what am I supposed to do here? I mean, shit. Unless I'm going to cold call them with some cops behind me. Like, I'm not talking to that person again. <laughs> it's, it's so screwed up in so many levels. Uh, you said you were talking to some of uh, some lawyers about things, civil lawyers. Did you interview any police officers about the, the process? So I talked to one actual current detective who had just moved into like a public information officer role but I had seen him like speak before as a detective and I was like there were a lot of things he said that were right but there were so many things he said that were wrong like he so often referred to so many sexual assaults as just like misunderstandings I knew you were going to say something like that where they dumbed down the situation or they called yeah. a survivor or a victim like an alleged or like the the um the abuser the alleged perpetrator or something like that I knew that they would talk something down exactly yeah no he did he talked he talked it down so much where he was just like most of the time I think it's just like these like these poor boys just don't know what they're doing and I'm like how do you not know that you're sexually assaulting another human being and how do you not know that's wrong and how do you not know there's consequences for that and like, if you genuinely believe that, then like, at least have like a restorative justice, at least have some kind of like something available where that person learns that what they're doing is not okay. Like, even if you in your mind are like, well, they shouldn't go to jail for six years because they're 19. I don't, first of all, your opinion has no place in this. <laughs> like if they're following the law, right? And like, secondly, fine, then do something about it. Don't just be like, okay, this wasn't that and the case is closed and this guy is just free to just tell people they were falsely accused. I just feel like it keeps perpetuating that like horrid system of just like, they're going to keep doing it. And like, where, where are consequences or accountability anywhere? And if they're not going, if the, if the criminal system isn't going to work, which it's not, it's just not, then like, where are the alternatives? And why is there not more effort being put into that, basically? beating some of these things out into the shadows and they're they're hitting like the walls of society instead of being stuck in the center of it. So people are now, especially with Harvey Weinstein or like R. Kelly, like people are very aware of what's happening here. It's very public spectrum and they know now there are consequences to your actions on a public realm. And we know that from what we've seen with COVID vaccinations, everything starts with celebrities and then trickles down to normal people months and months later, possibly years. So hopefully it's a scenario where people are coming to, like a general public is coming to the understanding that the institutions are the ones that are holding on to these really whitewashed, archaic, like 1950s worldviews of this boys will be boys mentality of like what you were just saying. I mean, it's just, they don't know what they're doing. Okay, well, if that's the case, then we need some serious societal change when they teach kids what to do and give you a little deodorant stick and the condom and then show you like, the little like genitalia photos back in like fifth or sixth grade, maybe let's talk about rape. Let's talk about what, what consent means. And then we won't have to worry about these things when they're 19 and they don't want to be put away for six years because they're just a boy doing things that guys do. 
it's so frustrating because it's it, in some ways it's sort of like talking about like you know like teen pregnancy it's like they're unwilling to do the prevention and education work but they're also unwilling to like help in the aftermath or like understand the consequences of what that means for society just from the kind of prevention aspect it's like where's the education where's the prevention and why are you unwilling to do anything to change an outcome that you agree is like not great it's not a good outcome essentially how do you change that and what's your plan even rain for example like great organization they do some really good work but they're really stuck on this like People are like, we need to train officers, we need to train lawyers, we need to train, train, train. And it's like, well, until their attitudes and their perceptions change, you can give them all the training in the world and they're just going to be like, okay, nobody else around me believes this, so why am I going to pursue it? Like, There's a huge, like, broader layer and level of things that need to change before. And it seems like there's a little bit of that happening where consent was never something that was talked about when I was in school. I think it's good that those things are happening and... They do need to happen sooner. You know, I have a sixth grade son. That's when these conversations need to happen. You know, we have not been doing this for very long, but a couple of things that we've learned are it's incredibly mentally and emotionally taxing talking about this stuff a lot. You know, there are definitely days where it's like, oh my gosh, is this even worth it for my own mental health state? But one of the things that I think keeps us going is we get these emails or DMs from people who are like, oh my God, thank you for talking about this. I'm so glad this is finally being brought to the surface. What sort of, you know, feedback or things of that nature have you gotten from people? And do you sort of feel the same way that we do about all of this? Yeah, no, I definitely absolutely think it's worth keeping going. Um, I'm like on a very long break from mine. I don't know if I'll go back to it anytime soon or not. And if I do, I, I, I don't, I feel like maybe like finally, once my case was closed, it was like, okay, I can move on to them, like the healing phase. And it's crazy how much just that being done allowed me to like move on to the next level in my mind, like finally have closure and finally not be waiting to accept more abuse. So it's like, I feel like I'm finally in a different place. And like, it's worth keeping going, but it's also worth taking the breaks and especially from listening to it too. Like a lot of people who listen are survivors or are secondary survivors, know someone like a loved one and are just trying to understand better, like what's going on in their life and like how to support them and everything. So I think it's really useful and it, it really does make it worth it because like in my case, since I brought things up from it throughout my podcast, they eventually found it, of course, which like I knew was going to happen at some point. And it was not good for me. Like there was a lot of blowback. And uh, it was actually really devastating. Like after that, like the attacks on my character that were just completely false skyrocketed. And it was a really painful situation to deal with from like truth seeking organization, right? So there was there was a lot of negative things that came out of it. But it was sort of the thing where I already knew my case was going nowhere at that point it had been that long and like I I knew that there was like a bigger issue so it was like important to me to be able to start to cover like the bigger issue and the systemic issue and things that will lead to like a broader change and the dms I've gotten from people are like unfortunately a lot of people who can relate and who have been through similar things who've been through something almost like it's insane the amount of people who have been through almost the identical same thing as me and that's why a lot of times when I feel like I bring up my case like other people will definitely be able to relate because I've just heard it so much right near the end of my case right after it closed somebody had sent me a really sweet message and talked about how it helped them kind of work through their own trauma and understand certain things that they didn't understand about the legal system and what happened to them before like they thought it was personal when it's really just systemic and reading things like that make it so much easier and like and just give you the peace of mind of knowing like no I, I did the right thing I did the hard thing I did the thing that wouldn't be easy and I did the thing that made life harder for me in the moment, but are making things better for people and 
hopefully a society in some tiny, tiny way in the long run. So it's like those things help a lot. So I'm really grateful to you both for doing what you're doing and for keeping these conversations going as difficult and as taxing and as much of a hardship. Honestly, it is. It's like, it's a very like emotionally taxing thing to be doing. So I really am grateful for other people and creators who are doing similar work. And to you too. Thank you. (laughs) If we break down what you just kind of said, you more or less got in trouble, quote unquote, for trying to ask questions and figure out how a system functions. You more or less got dinged for asking questions. And I think it goes back to it again, is like this underground current that comes with all of this, which is boys will be boys. We don't talk about these kind of things. If you do, you're automatically uh, problematic or performing What is she really looking for here? Does she just seek attention? We've already had our fair slew of people trying to like lob comments and conversations at us about things. And I feel like we're kind of in a similar situation to you. Like we're not actively trying to like blow up the music scene. (laughs) But I feel like the act of searching is ruffling the feathers. And in doing that, people are are getting a little bit concerned because you're getting a little bit too close to the wound. And they don't want to see what's underneath that bandage and how bad that wound really looks, because that's going to make them have to do some sort of self-introspection and change things. And we know how people hate change. That was just a very long way to say, like, the fact that you got in trouble for this is super fucked up. You say it absolutely perfectly is just the fact that like looking for change within a system that was never intended for change and was built to support a very specific and small portion of the population. That's exactly what the issue is, right? So of course you're going to be like a, a problem. I had eventually reported to internal affairs again, against my better judgment, but because the chief of police told me to, and that's when they really like dove in and like, that's when they reviewed my, I always call it like a review of my podcast. They gave it basically five stars, but I give them a three stars for listening comprehension because it didn't. (laughs) 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 It's exactly that. It's like, they have such a problem with it and such a problem with people who are trying to do the right thing. And just even just ask basic questions about like, okay, what kind of training do you get? It took me so many people to really understand that there is none. You see it in issues within the police department and prosecutor's offices outside of sexual assault too. It's like, there's these really big issues with racism and big issues otherwise that they just, they don't want to have to deal with it. And so I like my advice to anyone is to be a problem. <laughs> like You're not going to get anywhere with your own specific case. So be a problem for the whole system and make problems and be a problem maker because <laughs> that's how eventually we're going to get things done. <laughs> I love that. And I think that's 100% correct. <laughs> I think that should be the slogan for all of this. Be <laughs> a problem. T shirt. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, a problem in a positive way. <laughs> in a positive way. <laughs> so, you said you also spoke to survivors and got some of their stories similar to yours. What were some that were a little bit different to yours, if you can remember any? Absolutely. The first person who jumped out at me, I spoke to really early on, she was assaulted by an on duty police officer. So she couldn't call for help because he has a police scanner. So where's she going to go? And it turned out that this man had done this to several other women. She's so courageous. I don't even have words for it because she went completely public with her story. She put her name and her face out there. She like did everything to be able to protect others. And if I'm remembering it correctly, it's been a little bit, but I believe this person had been transferred from department to department, then transferred again to a different department, like never really was even taken off the job for something 
as serious as raping somebody while they're on duty. And, and since her, I've heard so many similar situations, whether it be a domestic violence situation or just specific to sexual assault, where that person is just kind of like maybe moved a little bit, or maybe it's just thrown under the, the carpet and they try to just assassinate the person who reports it. It's just like, people really need to understand that in this, is they are protecting their own no matter what the situation is. That's very frustrating to progress, but it's just like another reason people need to be aware of that kind of specific things. That was a huge one. Um, just so many really incredible stories of, and every single person has been so incredibly courageous because no, nobody got a good response. Nobody gained anything. People lost a lot by ever saying anything to anyone, but um, a really amazing supportive community of people as well. Again, there's that chorus of people who are like, why don't you just go to the police then? And this is exactly why, because it, it's never a good experience. The feedback that we've gotten is that it's very much a catharsis for them, even if, you know, you only have 10 people who listen to it. They're, they're so strong and they're so courageous and they're coming forward not knowing what the outcome is going to be. We've gotten so much feedback of like, oh, you're trying to promote cancel culture. You're trying to, yeah, I know. I see your eye roll. <laughs> um, like, it was rape, so <laughs> can we agree to cancel that? And yeah, like, let's cancel that part of it. Um, <laughs> when a, you know, when a dog pees on the floor, you need to make sure the dog knows not to pee on the floor again or else it's going to get in trouble. You're not going to just keep letting your dog piss all over your floor. No one has anything to win here by coming forward. These are people who are doing this for their own emotional and physical well-being in an attempt to regain something that was taken from them without their consent. Absolutely. I think that's a really beautiful way to put it in situations where there's a person who can learn from their situation. They can still be taught and like built to understand things that like may seem basic to a lot of people and especially a lot of the people who are being assaulted that they just like don't understand. And like, honestly, I just finished my doctorate uh, like two months ago. And I, a big part of that was studying restorative justice when it comes to sexual assault. And I'm a huge proponent of that. I don't think it works in every case, but I think there's a lot of like situations where I absolutely could. And I'm a huge believer in being able to talk something out and being able to get second chances and being, having somebody held accountable, but able to learn and given consequences that are like not necessarily in alignment with our traditional system. And I think that's something that's extremely important to understand is like, of course, you're not trying to like completely blow up someone's life for no reason. Like you're looking for accountability for people. And I think that's, that's the reason that people come forward. Would I have felt any better if this person spent 10 years in jail? Probably not. Like there was a, like a, you know, like a news article that came out about him. Did that make me feel better? No, it made me feel worse. Like, it was just like, even when there's accountability, it's just, it's still, you look at the situation you're like, why did you need to do this? Why did this need to happen? Like, why did you do this in the first place? And I think that's the question that you keep coming back to. And like, I recently read like Chanel Miller's book. Finally, I didn't read it for a long time because I thought it would be really triggering, but I actually found it really healing in the sense that she had justice as you would traditionally define it, right? Like she, I mean, she was kind of like unfairly without any information thrown into the justice system. And she was unfairly kind of like put through the system without understanding it. And it lasted four years for her. But the difference is after four years, she not only had a conviction, but she also won an appeal. It was done for her. Every single possible traditional justice thing was done for her. But I found that like the way that she talked about things and the way that I feel about things were still very similar. So it's like really interesting to me that for someone who like technically gets justice as traditionally defined and for someone who absolutely doesn't and is harmed in the process and for someone who may never report, basically the bottom line is like, you're not going to, you're not going to find healing in the justice system. And I think what's most important to people is like you mentioned in your network, being able to tell a friend or tell other people so that they're safe. That's the thing that's the most important. So 
as far as anybody who doesn't report, it's equally as courageous and important and incredible to be able to tell the people around you because you also don't know how they're going to react. You don't know, like, even if it's someone you think you can trust, like you have no idea in this situation how people are going to react to saying that somebody sexually assaulted them in some way. I think it is really devastating that people look at it in this way of like, you're trying to ruin someone's life when it's the exact opposite. You're trying to save people from going through a lot of trauma. Trauma is... it's something that has happened to you. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to take care of in regards to yourself. Things happen to you in your life and you're not always in control of those things, but you are in control of how you handle the things that have happened to you and how they affect you on a day-to-day basis. If that's a situation where you were, you know, we're in a situation where you were young and something happened to you, it's your job to work through those things, unfortunately, and make sure that you're not perpetrating the same behavior in your older years and having the same cycle continue. Or if it's a situation where you're a survivor, you know, the trauma is yours to take care of, unfortunately, and fortunately, but you are in control of that in a world that is, seems like nothing is in anyone's control anymore. And as a control freak, I take a lot of uh, solace in that. Yeah, I definitely think it's really great and true that healing is sort of and like getting to that point is really in your power. But it also like for the time when it's just not possible. um, I think it's important to be able to identify that and be able to just offer yourself offer yourself a little bit of grace and everything as you kind of move through that and just keep trying to do your best go to go to therapy if you can <laughs> like do whatever it is that helps you to help get back in alignment with yourself but not to be hard on yourself if it takes some time I think even when you're not moving forward or you don't feel you're moving forward you're even sitting in your trauma and realizing that you don't have the time and the energy to deal with that at that moment that is strengthening you on the inside in a certain way Yeah, leaning into your pain and the sadness is like the worst, most horrible feeling thing at the time, but it magically pays off one day. Like if someone had told me that like a year ago, I would have been so angry. But like now I get it and I'm like, you get there. Just like it takes time. It takes time. That's all it is, really. And it makes you so strong in the end. You and I think everyone probably who's gone through stuff like this is just leaps and bounds stronger and obviously a very different person than when they came into the scenario that they've had to deal with. Definitely. I think it's a very unfortunate way to become stronger. It's just sort of like you are that strong person. It just like ignites that thing inside of you that makes you realize what you're capable of. And I hate that so many people find that power in that way. But you're absolutely right. Like there's no way you don't come out of it on the other end. Like Coping mechanisms, especially the unhealthy ones that people turn to sometimes to just get through that moment, whether it's, you know, drinking or drugs or eating or not eating or shopping sometimes it's just whatever gets you through that moment that's okay it doesn't make you a drug addict or an alcoholic or a bad person yeah thank you for saying that I definitely agree it's very during those times that like I said I think it's unrealistic to believe that at some point you won't have some kind of coping mechanism that's you know not considered typically healthy and like if it gets you through that moment all right (laughs) like you got through it so yeah yeah For people who are interested in this, listen to as many and as much voices as you can and as many diverse voices as you can. And just there's so many resources out there and being open to understanding and learning more all the time is just the biggest thing. And asking for systemic change and understanding doesn't have to threaten daily life. And it doesn't doesn't mean you're anti-American to ask for change. It's actually the most American thing there is. Enough is a podcast centering on abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like or subscribe and share with 
with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential.